um, we've been journeying through and traveling through and, and dissecting and learning um, from the book of Hebrews, which is ultimately a letter telling us why Jesus is better, why Jesus offers us a better deal, why what we have in Jesus is the greatest thing we could ever have, why his message is the best message, and why he's better than the Old Testament, he's better than the law, he's better than sacrifice, he's better than religion, um, he's better than everything that we could do to try and make ourselves right with God. It's a better message. It's a better covenant uh, that is officiated by a better mediator, um, and, a be- and it's a better guarantee. It's a better life. It's, it's, it's reconnection with God uh, in a way that nothing else could ever have produced. And so Jesus is better than the angels because the word angelos means messenger, and Jesus brings a better message. He is the message that he brought. Um, he's a better, better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Old Testament. And in him, we have everything that we need. And that is why this message uh, is so good. The message that we have in Jesus is not a list of demands telling you what you need to do in order to be right with God. If you're visiting with us this morning and you haven't heard that before, uh, I want you to be very clear that we're not here to enlist you in a works program that's going to tell you that you need to do certain things in order for God to accept you. We're here this morning to share what the message of the Bible is, which the message of the book of Hebrews is, that this is not the Old Testament where God gave the law and people had to try and follow the law. And the Scriptures make it very clear in the New Testament that God gave the law to show us that we needed a Savior. In other words, God knew we wouldn't be able to fulfill the law, but under the law, we would be declared guilty, as it says in Romans, so that every mouth would be stopped. It says in Romans 1, nobody can proclaim to be righteous in their own strength. So under the law, we know that we're sinful. We know that we fall short. We know that we've fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore, we can accept a Savior and the grace of God to save us all from our sins. In other words, we can fall into the arms of God knowing full well that we could never have done anything to save ourselves, and instead we put our faith in Jesus. And that's why the Bible says a righteousness has now appeared that is apart from the law, but that depends on faith. That's the righteousness that we have. It's the only way to true righteousness. That's why Jesus said, and if you're going to be like the Pharisees, you need a righteousness greater, otherwise you wouldn't even see the kingdom of God. There's nothing you can do, even if you were as diligent as a Pharisee, as, as Saul was before he became Paul, when he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he, was, he would still not even see the kingdom of God, because it's only by faith that we can be made righteous. It's only through Jesus, and that's why Jesus um, is better than the law. He's better than the Old Testament. Hebrews 7 verse 18, um, I'm just going to open with that uh, just to show you this. Um, We've covered this already in in a previous message, and by the way, all of our messages are available online at soundcloud.com forward slash anchor dash Joburg, or just search anchor Joburg on soundcloud.com. You can also find it on our website, anchorjoburg.org. But Hebrews 7, verse 18, 19, and 22 says, For on the one hand, a former commandment, the law, is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. The former commandment is, is useless and weak, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope, Everybody say better hope. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Not the old covenant, 
not the covenant of the law, not us trying through our own strength to be right with God, but Jesus, a better hope, the one who fulfilled the law on our behalf and imputes righteousness to us as a free gift of His grace. That's the message that we have. And so this is not a message saying that if you, if you manage to be very, very religious and do everything right and try your best to be good, then maybe, just maybe, God will accept you. Maybe, just maybe, you can get a little bit of a connection to God and, and He might bless you a little bit. But if you mess up, that blessing is going to remove itself and you're out in the wilderness and God will, will abandon you until you repent and then you can try again. And, and maybe if He doesn't grow weary, that's how people perceive their relationship with God because they're under the law and the law is there to condemn. So people live under condemnation because they've put themselves in a place of serving the law and the Bible says the law is a curse. You literally place yourself under the curse of guilt and condemnation whenever you try and serve God according to the law. But when you understand righteousness, you understand that you're no longer under the law, but you're under grace. And therefore, you're not condemned. And when you know that you're not condemned but accepted, guess what happens? You begin to serve God wholeheartedly. You begin to love Him. You begin to walk with Him. You begin to journey with Him. You begin to grow in your relationship with Him. And as you do that, guess what? You begin to do the stuff that you weren't able to do when it was the law, but now you're doing it because it's the response of your heart. And that's how Jesus changes us from the inside out, whereas the law would try and change you from the outside in. We can't change as people from the outside in. We need to change from the inside out. And that's this message that we have. That's, that's this announcement that we make, this astounding announcement that Jesus has done everything that could ever need to be done in order to reunite us with the Father. We've all been reunited with the Father, and we become His children. So the moment you put your faith in Jesus... It causes the grace of God to be appropriated to your life, to be applied to your life. And in that instant, the Bible says that you are perfected in Christ. You're perfect in Christ in that instant. That is your, your heavenly position before God. You're justified completely. There's still a process of sanctification that we go through in this world, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment, but your position in Jesus is that you are completely forgiven, holy, blameless before Him, not because you've done everything right, but because you've accepted the, the, the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus in your life. And so you become a child of God. There's nothing that keeps God from being your father, from journeying with you, from, from speaking into your life, from being involved in your life. John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to become children of God. Galatians 3.26 says, all of you are God's children because of your faith in Christ Jesus. Not all of you are God's children, except those of you that don't keep the law perfectly. You're, not, you're excluded. Um, you know, the rest of you can come in. Because you know what? If that was the standard, none of us would get in. None of us would get in. None of us would be God's children because we all still fall short and we all still make mistakes and we're still on a journey of, of catching up to who we are in Christ. C.S. Lewis said, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. So this is the heart of the Father that we have. This is what God did in order to save his children whom he loved. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. That's God's heart. And, and I remember hearing the story of, you know, here in South Africa, especially now in the wintertime, um, we all love going out, or most of us love going out to, um, to the bush and to the Kruger Park or to one of our, our amazing wildlife reserves that we have around this country. And, and, uh, and a lot of people um, in this area would go to, um, you know, I remember once actually preaching on an Easter camp out at Mabula in that area, the Bela Bela area, and uh, driving back home, I had never seen so many issues with Gauteng number plates driving in one direction. Like all of Joburg, you wonder where everybody is in Joburg this time of year. They're all at Bella Bella. They're all like sitting in the bush somewhere, um, you know, having sundowners uh, in the evening and, uh, and enjoying our African nature that we have. And, 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 and so um, I remember hearing a story of a family that went out to one of these private reserves that are unfenced. Um, some of the, the reserves don't have fences. And so you're, you've got a little spot, maybe a little Rondavel and a little outdoor kitchen. I've been to a place like that before, and, and it's amazing. You make a fire, and um, the one place I visited was called Inguilela, and you, while you're brying at night, um, you, you take your torch, and you kind of sh- shine it into the bushes, and you just see all these eyes looking at you, and, um, and if you sit still long enough, literally hyenas come out and try and steal the meat off the bry. Um, and so I was at a place once with a couple of friends, and, and we were trying to chase these hyenas away from, from the meat. And until you're sitting on a plastic chair and you have a hyena walk directly in front of you, you have no idea how big those animals actually are. Um, and then you couple that with the, with, the, uh, with the knowledge that they have the strongest bite force of any animal in the animal kingdom, and it gets kind of nerve-wracking. Um, and I remember there was some hyenas that, you know, we were chasing away um, in front of us, and it's all fun and games until, you know, when you do this to a hyena, and the hyena does that back, you know, it's like, you have the meat, you have the meat, we'll just chill over here, um, but that we were chasing them away, and then we heard a noise behind us, and another hyena had literally gotten onto the table, and the outdoor kitchen was eating stuff there, and so this is kind of the experiences that we get to have here in South Africa that we were very fortunate to have. Um, but I remember hearing about a family, actually a local family that lived here in Bryanston, um, being out in the bush, and uh, the guy had a six- or a seven-year-old son that was walking on a little wall, and um, just right maybe two meters away from his dad. And in the middle of the day, um, a leopard came, grabbed this little boy, bit into his shoulder, and started dragging him off into the bush. And this dad pursued through the, you know, the leopard was making haste, um, and this this dad just fortunately was right there, made the biggest noise and chased after the leopard carrying his boy away for 50 meters into the bush and made such a noise and was so just, you know, ferocious in his pursuit of the leopard that the leopard eventually said, okay, this is way too much effort for a snack. And so, and so he let go of the boy and, uh, and, and ran off and the dad was able to retrieve his son and the boy uh, obviously was, was treated in hospital but wasn't seriously hurt, um, had obviously bite marks um, in his shoulder and had a great story to tell uh, when he went back to school after the holidays. So, um, but, but the point is that this is the heart of the father. This is the heart of any father that if something comes and threatens my children's lives, I'm going to fight for my children. I'm going to shout. I'm going to pursue. We sang that, this, that, that song this morning about the reckless love of God that will not stop pursuing you, that will kick down any wall, that will, that will fight for you, that will climb a mountain for you, that will, that will leave the 99 behind in order to pursue you. That's the heart of God. 
That's the heart of the father that we have. Like this dad who chased down the leopard to save his boy, God chased us down and, and pursued us in order to retrieve us from the enemy and to retrieve us from our own sinfulness, to save us from our sins. The heart of the father is an incredible thing that we must understand if we're truly going to walk with God. You cannot walk with God faithfully without knowing His heart. Because faith, at the end of the day, is trust. And if you don't have trust in the heart of God for you, you'll doubt and you'll struggle to follow when He speaks. But if you trust your Father and He says jump or run or walk or go or come or stay or do whatever He calls us to do, you will do it if you know that even though you don't understand, He has the best for you. You need to know that you're forgiven. You need to know that you are right with God, that you are children of God because of your faith in, in Him. And you need to know that His heart is for you because that is what will produce a faithful lifestyle within your heart and within your life. Unfortunately, the heart of the Father is not something that everyone always understands. We don't always know how to trust in God's heart. For many people, when you speak about the Holy Spirit, they don't really have any other reference point except for what we read in the Scriptures about a Holy Spirit. And so when you read about the Holy Spirit and you read about who the Holy Spirit is and what He does, and we did a series on that recently, then we just take the Holy Spirit for who He is. And when we talk about Jesus, people have a historical person to refer to. We know that there was a God in the flesh, a person called Jesus who walked this earth, who died for our sins. We have a historical figure to refer to. But when we talk about the Father and the heart of the Father, all of us have a reference point in that we all had earthly fathers. The problem is that our earthly fathers were imperfect because all earthly fathers are imperfect. And for a lot of people, their example of an earthly father wasn't a good one. Perhaps your father was, was, was absent or perhaps he struggled with sin or perhaps he let your family down in some way. And, 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 and so when we have this reference of the father, many of us struggle with that concept of a good father because we didn't have a good father. Or at the very least, none of us had a perfect father. All of our fathers failed us in some ways and, and I'm a dad of three boys and I'll be the first to tell you that I fall short in raising my boys, that I'm not perfect. And I try and help my boys to know that. Daddy makes mistakes. Daddy's not perfect. Daddy needs Jesus. I don't want them to put their hope in me. I want them to put their hope in Jesus. And, um, you know, I'm on crutches at the moment uh, after the surgery, and, and I will be probably for another week or two. And, um, and my boy Jude absolutely loves playing with those crutches. And so whenever I'm sitting down, he grabs the crutches. They're way too big for him. But he's like, look, I'm like Daddy. And he's like walking on crutches. And, uh, and I just thought it was such a poignant picture of so often how my imperfections would affect my children. It's just the reality of, of, of parenting. It's the reality of nature is that we're imperfect as parents and as leaders and as, and as dads and as moms. And oftentimes, our, our kids are affected by that. That's just how it is. And we just thank God for His grace. I always say that if, if I was a perfect parent, my kids wouldn't need Jesus. So I'm just making sure they need Jesus, and I'm just making sure <laughs> that they are going to walk with God in the future. Um, so, so... You know, we've, we've all got these references, and so our idea of a father that loves us perfectly and unconditionally and with a steadfast love can sometimes get warped in our own hearts and minds. 
And um, I remember hearing the story from a pastor uh, from a, a very um, influential church in Jakarta, Indonesia, um, by the name of Abba Love Church. And there's a pastor there, Pastor Eddie Leo, um, who founded that church and pioneered that church. And I heard him preach once about something that happened out in one of the rural areas of, of, of Indonesia. And uh, a, a man that was coming to their church, and he would come regularly to church, but for some reason just wasn't able to connect, wasn't able to worship, wasn't able to trust, wasn't able to open up his heart um, to the message of the Father and the Father's love and what the Father did through, for us through his son Jesus. And so they worked with this man for a while, and it just seemed like there was walls that he had up that they couldn't break through. And, um, and during one service, um, you know, the Spirit of God touched him, and he just started to break down. And he started to share what happened with him when he was a boy um, out in the rural areas. He came from, um, you know, his, his, his father was a very strict man and was a farmer. And, uh, and as a boy, he took one of his dad's pigs and went and sold it so that he would have money to buy himself some stuff uh, that he wanted. And just like a kind of a mischievous, boisterous kid, just, you know, I haven't sold a pig before, but I've done some other stuff. Um, but when he got home and his dad had found out that he had done that, the punishment that his dad, um, uh, uh, you know, gave him was so severe that it affected him for life. And it affected how he could um, relate to God. And, and uh, he told the story about how his dad actually... Um, uh, cut off a piece of his ear and made him eat it as punishment. Now, that's extreme, and uh, there's some crazy things that happen out in the world. Um, and, and you can imagine, though, if, if your father gave you that sort of a punishment, and you then go to church, and they say, oh, we serve the good father, he's thinking there's no such thing as a good father. There's no such thing as, as, as a father's just want to punish me. They just, they just want to get retribution. They just want vengeance for everything I've done wrong. And you might not have had a father that hopefully cut your ear off um, or any part of it off, but, but you might have had a dad that was absent or a dad that disappointed you in some way or failed you in some way. And oftentimes when we've had that experience, you think, how can my God in heaven be a good father? What is a good father? How can I believe in a good father? Um, and so people tend to think that God is the same, that if your earthly father was absent, that your heavenly father would be the same, that, that, that he would, like many dads and, and, and men that give birth to children and then are absent from their lives, you know how many children are growing up, especially here in Africa, without fathers? It's a massive problem that we have in our continent is that there are so many people growing up without dads, without fathers. And, um, and there's a lack of an example of what the heart of the father really is. And so like many earthly fathers, they give life to children and then disappear or withdraw themselves. And people tend to think the same thing about God, that he gave us Jesus to save us in a moment. He gave us life and now he's not involved anymore. Now he's kind of withdrawn and he's busy with bigger things and he's sitting in heaven and, and while you're going through pain or while you're struggling or while you're um, facing things in your life, the heavenly father is off doing something else because he doesn't have time for you. For, I don't know why we think that way, but we, we tend to think that way. Whenever you go through a difficult time, the first thought you have is, has God forgotten me? 
Does he care about what's happening in my life? Does he see what I'm going through? Is he still involved in my life? We kind of tend to think that God in heaven, the Father, is an absent Father. But the message of the Bible over and over again reiterates that God is not an absent Father, that he is consistent, that he is steadfast, that he is faithful that He loves you in every single moment, whether you are good or whether you are bad, whether you've had a good week or a bad week. uh, His patience has no bad days. He doesn't ever get edgy and cranky. and, 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 And in fact, when He reveals Himself to Moses, He says, I'm slow to anger and rich in mercy, steadfast in love. That's how he reveals himself to Moses. He is is a good God and a good father who is perfectly consistent in his love towards us. In fact, if you read 1 Corinthians 13, and where it talks about, you know, love, love is kind, love is patient, um, you know, love hopes, always hopes, always believes, endures all things, um, always perseveres, it never fails. That is a description of God because the Bible tells us God is love. So he is patient and kind and, 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 um, you know, just absolutely steadfast and faithful. That's the Father that we have, and we need to make a a shift in our thinking from equating our heavenly Father to our earthly Father to understand that He is the perfectly good Father, that is perfect in all of His ways towards us. Romans 8.32 basically shows us um, how God hasn't removed Himself from your life after sending Jesus. In 8.32 it says, He, God, the Father, who did not spare His own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, when we needed salvation, if God was willing to give up his own son, why do we think that now in our lives that God would withhold good things from us, that he wouldn't be involved in the journey, that he wouldn't care about your life, that he wouldn't care about, you know, the Bible says that God counts your tears. He he stores them in a bottle. He cares about every heartache and every pain and every challenge and every struggle. He is a God that is more committed. His his thoughts towards us are so vast that if we were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And they are precious thoughts. That's the heart of the Father towards you. And that grace that He gives us, that love that He gives us, gives us endurance. It gives us strength to know that our Father loves us. He is for us. It gives us confidence and strength to keep moving forward. And so last week, we started in Hebrews 12, where Pastor Mark spoke about how we get to run this race set before us with endurance, because we know that God is with us. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, uh, which we covered last week, said, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. As we run, we look to Jesus. We look to the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's a journey. That means there was a starting point for your faith, and there's going to be an end point for your faith as He perfects your faith over time. God goes on a journey with us. And so as we endure, as we continue, we know that God is involved and at work on that journey. He continues to be involved. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews carries on here by encouraging us not to grow weary on that journey not to give up on that journey, but to trust that God is involved in your journey. God is involved in your journey, and we need to trust that. Hebrews 12, 3, uh, which is where I'm going to be for the rest of this morning, so if you want to open up your Bibles, uh, go ahead to Hebrews 12, because we're going to look at some scriptures there. Um, For those of you that wonder, I normally read from the ESV version here and there. I'll I'll throw in something different, but um, most of the time I'm reading from the ESV. Hebrews 12, verse 3 says, Consider Him, the series is called Consider Jesus. Consider Him 
who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that he may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Such hostility, sorry, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In other words, the way that we endure hardship and we continue enduring and we continue moving forward is by considering him, by keeping our eyes on him, by considering Jesus. And so we consider him, it gives us strength, even when you struggle with sin, even when people come against you, even when you face challenges in your life, the scriptures encourage us not to give up because God is helping us, because God is involved, and because God uses the process of our struggles and our challenges and our difficulties to discipline us. Now, that's what I want to talk about today as I talk about consider Jesus and the heart of discipline. Consider Jesus and the heart of discipline. Hebrews 12, verse 5 and 6 says, My son or my daughter, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. The one he loves. He disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. There's a process. There's a journey. He's a loving father. He's a good father. He's involved in your life. And at times that means helping you to grow and to discipline you and to, and to train you. But I have always thought about this as a dad that the Lord disciplines the one he loves. I discipline my kids, or at least I try to, because I love them, because I have better for them. But one of the things that I've always taught my boys, and I still ask them this, I said, um, I'll say to Eli, Eli, do you know that dad loves you even when you're naughty? Even when you're, it never changes my love. In fact, it's because of my love that I am involved in your life, that I'm teaching you what's right and what's wrong. It's because I care for you. It's because I believe in you. It's because I believe that there is a great life ahead of you, and I want to save you from heartache, and I want to help you on the right path. That's why I'm involved, and that's why I apply discipline, not because I, I'm, I'm just punishing you, but because I'm teaching you, because I'm helping you. And so I often say to people that, um, before they're allowed to discipline my children or, uh, or, or speak into my children's life in any way, they must first delight in them. Because the scriptures say that, in one of the translations says um, this verse in such a way, it says that the Lord disciplines those in whom he delights. So the context of discipline is delight. Before you want to discipline somebody or reprove somebody or, or rebuke somebody, because sometimes as Christians we get on a, a rebuke trip, we think we're, we're super cool when we get to rebuke somebody. Before you rebuke someone, ask yourself the question, do I delight in them? Do I delight in them? Do I want what's best for them? Do I love them? Do, am I, do I care about them? Am I trying to help them? Or am I just trying to assert some authority because it makes me feel good? The context of discipline is delight. And here's the important thing for you to know. When God brings discipline to our lives, it's not punishment. He doesn't punish us for our sins because he's already punished Jesus for our sins. If God punished us and Jesus, he would be trying the same crime twice. And even in our judicial legal system, you cannot try the same crime twice. It's called double jeopardy. So if Jesus has been punished in full, for our sins, 
God is not going to punish you for your sins. He's already forgiven you for your sins, but he'll discipline you. He'll chastise you. He'll help you. He'll train you. So that as we go through difficult moments, and we spoke about this uh, two weeks ago when I spoke, I said, sometimes the grace of God delivers us from trouble completely. In an instant, he takes you out of it. But other times, the grace of God sustains you through trouble. And oftentimes, when God doesn't just deliver you, but instead sustains you, it's because he's teaching you. It's because he's causing you to grow. It's because he's doing something expensive in your life. I've been through some things in my own life that I wish I'd never had to go through. But you know what? At the other end of it, I can look back and I can see that God has done some expensive things in my life. Some things that I couldn't have learned in a Bible college. Some things that I couldn't have just picked up from being around ministry. Some things that I couldn't have just kind of done for myself or learned for myself or read in a book. There are some expensive things that God has done as he has caused my heart to deeply and truly trust in him. Because I've had to walk a journey that I didn't want to walk. That was often difficult, that involved suffering, that involved tears, that involved heartache, that involved brokenness, that involved my own flaws and imperfections. But coming through that, being sustained through it by His grace, I can look back and I can say, I now have something in me that I didn't have before. God has done something in my heart, in my character, in my nature, in my Christian maturity, in my belief, in my faith, that I could never have done for myself. He's trained me. He's strengthened me. He's caused me to be stronger, and, and the stronger you are in Christ, the more you're able to carry. And I'm saying, God, we want to build a great church here at Anchor Church. We want, to, we want to reach a city. We want to shape a city. We want to influence a city. But I'm very well aware that I am not where I need to be yet to lead that kind of church at this moment. And so as I go through things in life and I face challenges and I just don't give up, I just don't grow weary, I just keep going on the road, I know that God is busy shaping me and forming me into the kind of leader that will be able to lead the kind of church that can shape a city. But there's a journey for me and there's a journey for you and there's a journey for all of us as we become the people God needs us to be to fulfill the journey and fulfill the the calling that he has on our lives. So don't give up. Don't give up. Even if you're not where you want to be today, don't give up. As a pastor, one of the biggest challenges that I've had um, and that I've often told people is that, you know, when, when you stand up and when you grow in influence and what happens is, is that you become um, kind of a public figure and people, be, are, are, they feel justified speaking about your life or into your life or criticizing. And, and oftentimes I get, I get messages and people will, will feel like it's their duty to criticize my life or my family or, or my decisions or whatever it is and, 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 and to come against the church and to come against you personally. And I've had to deal with that for all of my years in ministry. And I've often said that, you know, when you're younger, it still affects you so much. Like you lose sleep at night because of the things that people say. It's just the reality. And I've often said, I want to get to a place in my life where, where I'm not so easily affected by what people say. I look at older leaders, senior leaders, and, and they have this ability to let those things just deflect off of them. And I'm like, I want to be that kind of leader. And I've often said to people, you know, the biggest challenge in ministry as a pastor is to grow a thick skin while maintaining a soft heart. How do you have a thick skin and a soft heart? And... Um, you know, as I've gone through my journey, I can see how God has done that. 
The thick skin comes when you just are so sold out in the knowledge that you are called and that God is with you and that you are loved and that you are forgiven and that you are accepted, that, you, that you're able to deflect those things. They don't affect you anymore. They have no bearing on my significance. If people have the right to think what they want to think, we just keep walking forward. But at the same time, when you keep your eyes on Jesus and you remember his love for you and his grace for you and how, um, how oftentimes we have failed God and yet he continued to love us, what happens as you do that is you, you maintain a soft heart. If you keep your connection with Jesus and your eyes on him, you'll keep a soft heart. You won't allow those things to affect you. And so you learn to be content which is a powerful, powerful thing for us to learn. Philippians 4, 11 to 13, you've all heard uh, 4.13 that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But 11 says, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, that verse is a lot more about finding contentment in your heart no matter what you're going through and being able to keep a soft heart no matter what, what, you, what you're facing. And, and that's, what we, that's what we really need is that we need to learn how even when everything in our life is not going well, to be content in the love that our God has for us, in the fact that Christ is the one who strengthens us. It produces rest. It produces um, uh, stability in your life when you're not panicking about whether or, God, or not God is involved, but you're trusting Him through the storm. You're trusting Him through the difficulty. So I know that in time, I will, be kind of, I will become the kind of person that I've always hoped I could be. And I know that over time, as you journey with Jesus, if you do not grow weary, if you do not give up on this journey as you're being disciplined and as you're being trained, that you will become the kind of person that will have capacity that is greater than anything you ever imagined, where your life will have influence in the lives of many others because you stayed on the journey and you kept your eyes fixed on Jesus. And we're going to become this because our Father in heaven, the good Father who loves us unconditionally more than we could ever imagine, He's training us. He's disciplining us. He's helping us to mature. Hebrews 12, verse 7 to 11 says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. You endure so that you can be disciplined. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are, an, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. For our good. That we may share in his holiness. That we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. The value of discipline. You see, we won't accept discipline if we don't know the heart of discipline. You won't trust God if you don't know that He is good, if you don't know that He is working for your good. God, why do I have to go through this? A better question is, God, what are you teaching me through this? 
God, what, what are you shaping in me through this? God, I'm so excited about what you are doing in me as you teach me to endure and to trust and to keep walking and to keep going. I'm so excited, God, about what you're doing in my life. Even though this situation is not the situation that I wanted for myself, God, I thank you that I can keep my faith in you. I can keep believing and trusting in you. And I can know that all the while I am learning and growing as I go through it. I love the Greek context of the word for discipline. Because when we think about discipline, we think about, um, you know, a big rod or reed that is used kind of like in the old school days. Thank God I came into school just after that passed away. I think I still got it for a little bit of primary school, but luckily I never got any of those, uh, those smacks at school. But, but back in the day, the whole class would line up. You just come and you just get a big wooden ruler or some sort of a stick that would be used to discipline every child um, as, as he came through. Um, and so when we think discipline, we think of that. We think of God hitting us with a big stick. But the Greek context for the word discipline means to bring close and to bind up. It's actually um, a word that would be used for when you, for example, have broken your arm. And if you've ever broken a limb, I've broken this wrist twice. And, uh, and, and when I, I broke it, they put it in a cast. They bound it up. And for a period of time, that arm couldn't move. Why? Because it was healing. It needed to be bound and brought close so that it could heal. It's also used in the context of a vine. If you have um, a vineyard and you have vines and branches that, that fall onto the ground, the word, Greek word for discipline is where they would pick the vines up off of the ground, put them back onto the wire, and tie them to the wire, binding them to the wire so that they may produce fruit. And so when God says that he is disciplining your life, what it means is that he has taken the broken parts of your life and he is bringing it close and he is restricting it for a while so that it may heal. And he is lifting up the parts of you that isn't producing fruit and tying it to the vine. He is the, the branch, he is the vine and we are the branches. And he's bringing us close to his heart so that those parts of our lives can produce fruit again. It's a restorative process. It's not punishment. That's what God is doing with your life. He's bringing you close, binding you up to bring healing. He disciplines us for our good, it says, so that we may share his holiness. And holiness and happiness are not separated. They're the same thing. In fact, John Wesley proclaimed that it is not possible for a man to be happy who is not also holy. Think about it. He says, can anybody be truly happy while filled with anger, rage, and malice? Can anybody be truly happy while nursing resentment or envy? Can anybody uh, be truly happy if they're caught in the compulsion of insatiable lust and incessant materialism? The glutton, he says, may enjoy his food, but not his condition. And so holiness and happiness are not two different things. They're the same thing. When we share in God's holiness, when he trains us and he teaches us to deny certain things and to walk in holiness, what happens is that we become happy. It just takes weight off of our lives and it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, which is also our happiness. I love the fact that it's the grace of God that makes us holy. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us. What, what trains us? The grace of God. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. 
Did you know that God's grace isn't just there to forgive you of your sins like a dad that gives life to you in a moment, but he's still involved. The grace of God is still involved in your life. And what it does, it trains you. It trains you because it keeps you on the journey. And it trains you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly in the present age. That's what the grace of God does. So God's involvement in your life, His grace in your life, leads to holy living. Right believing leads to right living. This is not self-effort. This is not the law. Remember, the law made nothing perfect. But God disciplines us in and by His grace, a healing process of sanctification as He walks with us day after day, as He picks us up whenever we fall, as He encourages us whenever we feel disheartened. The Bible says that in 2 Timothy 2.13 that He is faithful even when we are faithless because He cannot deny Himself. Hebrews 12.12, and I'm almost done this morning, says, therefore, therefore, because God disciplines us and those in whom He loves uh, and whom He delights, Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. That uh, scripture is a little bit too close to home for me at the moment. (laughs) Strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Do you see how the, the discipline process is for your healing? When I uh, tore the ACL um, on this knee, just over a week ago, and uh, went to the ER, the first thing they gave me was a brace. Because what they want to do is there is, there is um, there's a tear there right now. There is uh, brokenness there right now. There's injury. And so by giving the brace, they isolate the knee so that it cannot move, which will bring healing. That is the picture of discipline. And so strengthen those knees, strengthen those drooping hands, make straight the parts of your feet so that the parts of your life that are currently lame and not able to function won't be put out of joint and become completely useless, but instead will experience healing and restoration and become powerful tools in God's hands. Whatever area of your life you're struggling with right now, as you trust God and as He disciplines you, they will turn around and become your greatest source of victory, your greatest source of of influence, your greatest source of power. It won't be put out of joint. Hebrews 12 verse 18 then kind of summarizes with this beautiful picture. I've preached the message on this before called Who May Ascend. Um, It is available online if you want to get more out of this Hebrews 12, 18 to 24 uh, section. Um, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord, as it says in the book of Psalms. Um, But it talks about two mountains here. And it says that we can experience the, the involvement in God in our lives because we have come to, uh, to Mount Zion, to Calvary, to Jesus, and not to the Old Testament. Because this is not the Old Testament, you're not on your own trying to fix yourself. You're under the grace of God. And so Hebrews 12, 18 says, For you have not come to what may be, may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches this mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That is a picture of Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus where God gave the law. There was a trembling, there was fire, there was earthquakes, there was flashes of lightning, and and even if an animal touched the mountain, if anything touched the mountain, it was put to death. That's the law. Guess what happened in the shadow of the law? Guess what happened while God gave the laws to Moses? 
the people of Israel at the foot of that mountain made themselves another God. Rebellion, the law stirs up rebellion in our hearts. You haven't come to that mountain. You're not standing in front of a mountain that's burning with fire. It says in verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is Calvary. This is salvation. This is the new Jerusalem. This is heaven. You haven't come to the Old Testament mountain that burned with fire. You have come to Jesus. You've come to Calvary. You know what Jesus did on that mountain? The same people that were mocking him. Jesus looked at them and said, God, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's forgiveness. And that soldier who was forgiven after just putting Jesus on the cross said, surely this is the son of God. When he saw the manner in which Jesus died and as he breathed his last, he said, surely this is the man of God. So when we come to that mountain, what happens is that we repent, we submit, we surrender because we see the love of God. It leads us um, into a relationship with God. The one mountain leads to fear and rebellion, the other one to salvation and grace. And we have not come to Mount Sinai, but we have come to Mount Zion, to a new mediator, to a new covenant. And it says this, it says to blood, that speaks of a better word than that of Abel. Now, in case you don't know what that means, when Cain killed Abel and his blood ran into the ground, God came to Cain and said, what have you done? For your brother's blood cries out from the ground for justice. And so the blood of Abel cried for justice and judgment. There was, a, there was condemnation in the cry of Abel's blood because Cain was guilty. But it says, you have now come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Whereas the blood of Abel was saying, guilty, the blood of Jesus cries out, forgiven. Forgiven. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You haven't come to the blood that cries out condemnation and guilt. You've come to the blood that washes away all sins and declares us justified and holy in the sight of God. By the blood of Jesus, we have been cleansed. So there's no more condemnation for us, church. And the discipline of God in your life is not condemnation. Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The discipline of God is not condemnation. It's not because of your sin. When bad things happen in your life or when you face challenges or struggles, do not say, God is punishing me. That's false. It's wrong. It's unbiblical, unscriptural, and it's dishonoring of God. When bad things happen in your life, you simply need to say, God is teaching me to grow and rely on Him. Every opportunity is an opportunity to rest in Jesus, to trust in Him more, and to grow. However those bad, sometimes bad things just happen in this life. We live in a broken world, and we don't always have to figure out why they're happening. We just have to keep trusting in Jesus, and know that as we grow, as we go, we grow, and we're disciplined, and we mature, and we become the kind of people 
that cannot be shaken. The end of Hebrews 12 says that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And as God develops that kingdom in your heart, guess what? You won't be shaken either. You won't be shaken no matter how the storms may beat against your house. So God is just teaching us. He's disciplining us. He's training us because it's for our good. And that is the heart of Jesus and the heart of discipline. So as you're disciplined in this life, as you're trained, don't forget, we serve a good father who loves us unconditionally and is doing everything and working everything together for our good. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and pray together.